It's been said that at the center of the universe is a relationship. Before time as we know it, before the creation of the planet Earth, before anything ever existed, something existed. A relationship, God, the triune God to be exact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As far as we know, this God in perfect relationship never had a beginning and won't have an end. He just is and always has been, and he just is and always will be perfectly fine in relationship with himself. It's kind of weird, isn't it? He's relationally complete, and that is important because this God, this loving relationship at the center of the universe chose to create all the stuff that's created. And what's important to understand is that from the very beginning, God created not out of necessity, not because he was lonely and needed some friends, and not because he was bored, but just out of an overabundance of his own love and creativity. That's fantastic. Stars and planets and galaxies and quasars and the massive and the minuscule, God created everything out of his loving abundance. And the biblical story tells us that God created the earth with great care. And since the Bible is a a theological document, a relational letter to us, and not a scientific document as we understand that term, the Bible doesn't tell us how God created everything, but it focuses on the fact that all of creation, from the mountains and the oceans to the, the plains and the deserts, from the birds of the air to the fish of the sea, even your family pet, it's all very good, unless your family pet's a tarantula. I can't go there, but I just don't like spiders. Anyway, of special prominence is the fact that he created human beings, male and female, and he endowed them, you and me, with this unique status in creation. We humans, you and I, Men, women, boys, girls are created in the image of God. We're the only beings on earth created in God's image. And among the many things that it could mean to be made in the image of God, maybe the most important thing is that God's image bearers, you and me, and every other human being, were supposed to be his representatives on earth. And we were created with two special things. One is agency, and the other's vocation. Okay. Image bearers of God are created with agency and vocation. Our agency includes things like the power to exercise our will, the ability to strategize and to think abstractly. I saw some of the kids playing uh, Magic the Gathering in the other room, and you guys have to kind of think ahead, right, to the next thing. Like, animals can't really do that very well. The ability to build and to innovate and to make music and to use language, that is agency. And God has also given us vocation. He gives us a general directive on how to use the agency that he's given us. So we're to steward creation. And we're to organize and refine and create in order to reflect the good reign of God. We're to take God's creation, which is already very good, and we're to do good things with it. So, for example, Andy Crouch writes that that human beings are the only beings on the planet that cook their food. So, like, a piece of corn that grows out of the earth is pretty good. Like, if you ever had a really good piece of corn, you can just eat it raw. It's pretty good. A lot of animals do that. But when you dry it out 
and you grind it and you make it into a hot tortilla. That's what I'm talking about. A little salt on that or chips or if you've ever had Nana's uh, caramel corn. <laughs> that's a piece, of, that's a work of art, right? So, so we, we take this and we unlock. When you take a piece of meat, just raw meat, and you put it on the grill, it actually breaks down and unlocks certain amino acids and proteins, and it changes the texture and the flavor so that it explodes. I'm getting really hungry right now, but see, we, we, we take raw materials, good raw materials, and we refine them, and we do artistic things with them, and that is part of our agency and our vocation. And at the center of our vocation is relationship. God created us for relationship with him, with relationship with each other, and right relatedness with all the creation around us. It sounds amazing, and when it's done right, whether it's a, a meal made with skill and love, or it's a conversation with someone that unlocks deep intimacy, or an innovation, maybe it's technological, that, that serves humanity and honors the created order, man, that is a thing to behold. It's like one of those few things that just if you've ever had a, just a, it's a great meal, like uh, Charlotte honeymooned, where is she? Oh, she's downstairs. She honeymooned in Italy and was telling me about the food that she and Mike had. And just, it wasn't just the food. If you've ever eaten in Italy, meals take two to three hours. And it's just this intimate moment of eating and drinking good wine. And oh, it's the whole thing. And that's a bit of how life, I think, is supposed to be. So that's agency and vocation at work. But part of the biblical narrative, of course, is the tragic reality that our ancient ancestors rebelled against God, and, and they forsook their vocation and used their agency to break relationship with God and with each other. So from the story of Adam and Eve on through history, humans and all of creation, including me and you, have been corrupted by sin. We're all made in God's image, but you know, our image is a little bit broken, a little bit tarnished, a little blurred. And so we're still capable of great beauty, like, I don't know, like a composition of music by Arvo Pert or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel or, or kindness, genuine love extended to another person. But then we're also capable of using our agency for evil. You know, innovations that, that could serve humanity are turned into maybe um, nuclear power into nuclear warheads, right? We, we, we can destroy things. Industrialization that makes things easier and simpler also pollutes the earth. Racism, unjust economic structures that favor the few and oppress the many. This is what I'm talking about. Evil's corrupted. The world is broken, and so are God's image bearers. So what is to be done? Like what? If God exists at the center of the universe as a relationship that's perfectly fine within himself, he doesn't really need to bail us out, does he? Like he's probably not too affected by it. And yet, out of the overflow of his love for us and for his creation, he set a course of action in place to rescue us. And it's no surprise that if God is a relationship at his core, that he would decide to work in and through human beings to accomplish his salvation task. But what is surprising are the types of people he chooses to work in and through. Take for Abraham, for example, a pagan man from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Of all the people in the world, God chose this strange man and told him that he would make his descendants into a great nation. And the whole idea is to bless Abraham and his descendants so that the whole world would say, whoa, 
who's their God? I want some of that. And then they would, the nations would come and know the living God. And of course, we know that Abraham's family sinned time and time again. And as a result, they ended up as slaves in Egypt, from which we get this other leader, Moses, a slave baby who was supposed to be executed at birth, but because of some courageous midwives and a brave mother and sister, he became the leader of, of Israel and, and led them out of captivity into Exodus. And there in the wilderness, God gave them the law and how to worship And when Moses died, his successor Joshua took this Exodus people out of the desert and brought them into the land that God had promised them. And he's supposed to, you know, conquer the nations and and to set up this wonderful reign so that the nations would know who God is. But again, their sin got in the way. They argued with each other. They disobeyed and they struggled to ever find a foothold in Palestine. And finally, you get to the book of Judges that describes episode after episode of Israel's sin and disobedience. They rebel against God, they get overcome by the nations, and every time they're about totally snuffed out and crushed, God sends a deliverer, a judge like Deborah or Samson or Gideon to bail them out for a few years and then they turn to sin again. And by the end of the book of Judges, you get descriptions of human depravity so gross that I don't even think Quentin Tarantino would turn them into a film. Sometimes fiction is nicer than reality. At the very end of the book of Judges, we read the haunting words, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the political situation looked hopeless People were suffering, but that is just the type of scenario where God shows up. And that is the setting for the book that we're going to be exploring the next few months, the book of Samuel. Do you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for preserving your word over all of these years through your faithful servants. And I'm thankful that this word that we're going to dive into these next several weeks is more than mere history and more than just theologizing and stories about you, but it is a living word with good news for us. And I pray by the power of your spirit, as we seek to submit to this word, that you would transform us, that you would increase our hope in who you are and what you can do in our broken world and our broken souls. Amen. Every year for the past nine years during the kind of fall season, I know it's a little early for fall, but from school starting until Advent, let's put it that way, we've made a commitment to preach through the Hebrew scriptures, what some people call the Old Testament or the First Testament. Um, It's basically two-thirds of the Bible. And we do that for three reasons. First of all, we're living in an age of increased and increasing biblical illiteracy. Many of us in this room didn't grow up in church and didn't hear these stories very often. Others may have grown up in church, but when you heard these stories preached, it was in a moralistic way, like be like David or don't be like Goliath or, you know, this, this kind of thing. But I want us to be familiar with the story of God because two-thirds of the Bible 
is the Old Testament. Second, I want to cover texts like Samuel, because Jesus and Paul and the New Testament writers assume that their readers and hearers know these stories. They assume that we know about Hannah's song so that when we read Mary's Magnificat, we're like, whoa, I've heard that before. What does this mean? They assume that we know about the tragic rise and fall of Saul and the rise of David and the promise of a savior through his line. So that's the second reason. It's just we need to know these stories. And the third reason I want to emphasize Um, is that the New Testament is more than just a history, and it's more than just a backdrop for the New Testament. Yes, I believe that these texts point, some of them quite clearly, right to Jesus, and they prepare us for his coming. After all, I named this series The Rise of the King, a double meaning, the rise of King David, of course, but also pointing to Jesus himself. But I want to show us that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is gracious and compassionate today, and he's always been gracious and compassionate. And that means that there's good news in Samuel, and if you stick with me, we're going to find it. So since we're kicking off a new series, and I've already spent half my sermon time, don't worry, I'm not like just getting started. Um, I'm not going to do like a full message. I know you're like, gosh, this guy's back and he just won't shut up. Um, We want... Yeah. So what I'm going to do is is we're going to do an overview of the first 18 verses in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm just going to make some observations, and we'll keep keep moving along. Um, We're going to see where the good news is in this passage. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then we'll park there for a minute and just just talk. Um, So there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. You can tell a lot about a story by how it begins. For example, if I say, once upon a time, what kind of story am I going to tell you? fairy tale. Or three guys walk into a bar. A joke, right. So the Bible uses some of these standard tropes all throughout scripture to kind of tip its hand or or to tell us what's going on, what we can expect. And when we read about a certain man, literally that word, who has a wife who is barren, uh, there's probably stories that come to your mind. Now, I know we have some third through eighth graders in here, and I'm not putting anyone on the spot, but kids, if you want to yell out some famous couples from the Bible who had a hard time having kids who are important in Scripture, just name some out. Anyone think of anybody? Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. Ding, 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 Ruth. Anybody else? How about Zechariah and... Elizabeth, yeah, and who was their son? John the Baptist, right. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca, right. And we've got Jacob and Rachel. And this one I don't expect many people to get, but the closest reference would be Judges 13. And here I'm going to quote. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. 
And of course, that is Samson's parents, one of the deliverers of Israel. And just a crazy dude. We'll get to him someday. I'm going to do a whole summer series on how'd that get in the Bible, and Samson's going to be in there. So, yeah. In each of these cases, the promise of God is in danger. Like God promised to produce this whole people through Abraham and his line, and Abraham literally can't have kids. His wife is barren right? So there's, there's trouble in each of these scenarios. And in each of these scenarios where there's, there's lifelessness and barrenness, God comes through and not only opens the womb of these families, but through their children helps deliver Israel. So whatever is about to happen in 1 Samuel is similar in style to Judges because it's almost verbatim the same stuff that happens to Manoah and his wife, who have Samson, but it's a different solution to a similar problem. And here's exactly what, I, what I'm trying to say is, Samuel is its own book. It could very easily have fit in the book of Judges the way this story starts. But by being on its own, it's telling us God is doing something different. He's doing something new. He's going to solve the problem in a different way. Let's continue on for verses 3 through 8. Now, this man, speaking of Elkanah, Hannah's husband, this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion or a special portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, we, we learn in this section of the passage that Elkanah, this man, is a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, the living God. We know from his genealogy listed in the first few verses that he's a descendant through various routes of the Levites, of a priestly tradition, which means that his kid, if he ever has one, hint, hint, is connected to the priestly line. Well, in this section, we hear about his great devotion, traveling annually to Shiloh, which was the center of worship then, likely to the tabernacle itself. And we learn that Elkanah made an annual animal sacrifice, which would have been very costly. And he had a special fondness for his wife, Hannah. And he gave both his wives food, but he gave Hannah a special portion. Some translations say a double portion. It probably means special portion. The word in Hebrew is off. It uh, literally means your nose. Uh, like when it, the Hebrew is just so cool, it's so earthy. So like when it talks about God's anger, the word is like off, flaring nostrils. So you can imagine someone getting angry. Well, what's interesting here is that this it's talking about a piece of meat. Now, this is kind of gross, but back then, um, like, it would have been a delicacy to have maybe parts of the cow's face. <laughs> Yum. Um, so lucky Lady Hannah gets a, a special portion, maybe part of the cheek or, or maybe literally part of the nose or, or, or you know, something tender. Um, 
Anyway, so she's so fortunate. Um, while this annual pilgrimage of worship reveals Elkanah's piety, it also reveals Hannah's misery. Panina tormented her rival Hannah, rubbing salt in the very sensitive wound that Hannah was unable to produce a child for her husband. And it's such a painful sorrow that I know many of the women in my life have had to bear and still bear. Hannah was so distraught that she refused to eat. Maybe you've been anxious to the point of not feeling like you have an appetite, of being so knotted up inside that you just can't eat or sleep. Allow yourself for a moment to identify with Hannah, because that's where she's at. She's a woman undone, powerless to change her situation. Now, Elkanah loves her, and he tries, he tries. Um, guys, take no advice from Elkanah's moves here, uh, telling your wife who's grieving infertility that he's better than 10 sons. But I, the point is that he loves her and that she's miserable. Now, let's pause for just a moment and take stock of what's going on. Our story comes, Samuel is set like in the time period of the end of the Judges and right during like the time that Ruth, that book takes place. At this point in history, Israel is less of a nation and more of just a collection of tribal clans and identity. By the end of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin is all but destroyed by the other tribes. There's a lack of leadership, there's a lack of unity. There's a lack of justice, and worse than that, there seems to be a lack of hope because no one in that community is saying, we need to get back to God and trust him with our anguish. So that's the nation's scenario on a political level, on a religious level, on a social level, and even though this is an ancient book, boy, it strikes some things that are really close to our home, right? All that is going on in the background of this story. But what Samuel is doing is focusing in on one family in particular and one grieving woman who appears hopeless. It's like the people of Israel and Hannah are somehow wrapped up together, like she's personifying their situation. Her problems seem insurmountable. And unless there's help from outside, from above, there can be no good end to her story. And I really can't see a good end to the nation's story. It's as if Israel's history and Hannah's story are intertwined. Now let's see what happens next, verses 9 through 11. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat near the doorpost of the temple or the tabernacle of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. Before we dig in, two details. We've just learned that Hannah is not eating or drinking. And now it says after they ate and drank, she got up. It's deceiving in our English text. In the Hebrew, it implies that Hannah is not the one who ate and drank and got up. 
But at the festival, the people ate and drank, and when they got up, she got up too. Okay, just to get that detail down, because that's kind of confusing. The second detail is that Eli, this high priest with his two sons, he's at the gate of the tabernacle or the temple. And part of the work of the priest is he's kind of like a, a holy bouncer, if you will. At these festivals, I mean, they're week long of eating and drinking, and sometimes people overindulge. And so the priest kind of sits there and makes sure that no one's stumbling into the holy place of worship, a little tipsy or belligerent, okay? So that's, that's what the priest does, which is interesting. Well, we'll just talk about this later, but think about how holy kings uh, or protectors of the faith as well, what they're endowed with the sword. Okay, I'm not going to start standing out there with a the sword. You just come on in. The main point is what Hannah does. She's full of grief. She is beaten down by her rival, Panina, and there's little hope for her situation. And yet she goes into the place of worship and cries out to the Lord. She bears her soul to God. She admits her feelings of affliction and bodily asks God for, or boldly asks God for what she wants. I mean, she She's broken, but she just goes with her gut. She wants a child, and she just says it. And she makes a vow that if God gives her a child, that she'll dedicate him wholly to holy service. And Hannah reminds me, and, and so I'm sharing with you, reminds us that worship is not something we do only when we feel like it. Gosh, I wouldn't even preach half the time. Sorry, I'm just being honest. Like, I don't always feel good. True worship is being in a relationship with God, and that means being intimate, which means being real before God. He's not afraid that you don't always like what's going on in your life. He's not as insecure as me and you. You're not going to hurt his feelings by being honest about your pain, about your disappointment maybe with him. The very fact, by the way, just by yourself, that you are here right now in a place of worship. I, I know that not every one of you is just feeling so great right now. The very fact that you're here is exercising this, uh, this wisdom of Hannah. Unfortunately, the religious system that Hannah is a part of, and unfortunately too many of our religious systems, don't have much room for authenticity. Thankfully, she's not deterred. Let's read the rest, verses 12 through 18. Now, what came about as she, was, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth, little peeping Tom priest there. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, so only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I, I, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, well, go in peace, and may the Lord the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. 
it's a pretty sad thing that Hannah is pouring her heart out to the Lord and the priest mistakes her fervent prayer for drunkenness. Hannah, of course, explains that she hadn't been drinking at all, that she's a woman oppressed in spirit and that she had been pouring her heart out to the Lord. Earlier in the service, we heard from Psalm 50. And in that passage, we're reminded that God does not need anything from us in terms of food. He doesn't need animal sacrifices as though we were feeding him. He's like, hey, I already own every animal on the hills and the oceans. I don't need you to bring me stuff. So what is it that God wants? Well, Psalm 50, if we keep reading from verses 12 through 15, It tells us that God, what he calls us to do is to come to him and to cry out to him when we're anxious or in trouble. That's what he wants, is relationship. In the time of Samuel, the nation of Israel was unfaithful. Israel was trying to solve their massive problems by going through the motions of worship bringing all these sacrifices, trying to say the right prayers, but their actual faith was in their faith. Their actual faith was in the stuff they were doing and how they were saying things, but not actually trusting God. Their faith was in their armies and their economies and their their coming emerging technologies and the practices and policies of neighboring nations, which were more civilized than they were. What Hannah does is what Israel was supposed to do She personifies saving faith. She knows that without God's help, her situation is hopeless. So she cries out to God, and finally, when her her prayer is heard and acknowledged, that's all it took, having her need acknowledged, and she's blessed by Eli, she's about to go away in hope. She's able to to eat again, and her face is no longer sad. I want you to notice something important, because we're going to stop, we're going to stop at this section of the passage, and you're going to have to wait till next week to see if there's a baby or not, or just read. But at this point, she's eating, and her face isn't sad, and nothing on the outside has changed. She's not, she's not pregnant. She didn't see an angel of God who told her for sure she's going to be. God didn't tell her anything directly. Her situation in life was exactly the same on the outside, but something had changed on the inside that had nothing to do with her own intelligence or having gone to Bible college or her own abilities or her own financial situation. What changed was her dependence on God and her trust that he had heard her cry and that was good enough for her. For me, the point of the story is threefold, so I'm bringing this home. First is that God is gracious. Yeah, we know he's gracious in the Gospels. He's gracious in Samuel and the Old Testament, too. Through Hannah's prayer for a child, God is setting into motion a rescue plan for the entire world. Through Hannah's prayer would come a son named Samuel, spoiler alert, a man of God who would usher in uh, uh, the reign of King David and set the trajectory through that line of Jesus the Christ, our Savior and Lord. Never underestimate that your small amount of trust in God is not just for you. 
It just could be the key that unlocks a movement of God that has global implications. Second, God cares about our world. He sees all of this stuff going on, and he cares. I need to be reminded of that. You do too, I bet. If you haven't read the book of Judges lately, let me say that the national situation for Israel looked completely hopeless. It would have been an absolutely horrifying time to be alive. And as bad as things are now or have ever been in my lifetime, or I'll dare say your lifetime, some of you older, as bad as things have been in in recent history, I can say with a lot of confidence that the time of the judges and Samuel was absolutely worse. Absolutely a terrifying time to be alive. And God moves in these times of impossibility, and he opens new, unimagined possibilities. How might we take our political, our social anxieties, our fears, our anger, our distrust, our feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness, and take them to God in fervent prayer? There's kind of like cliche and quippy and Christian-y, but people always say, If you can worry about it, you can pray about it. Well, you know, that's kind of true. If I can complain about my situation on Facebook, I better be praying just as much, right? Otherwise, I'm kind of without excuse. And third, in the midst of all of this brokenness, and God cares about the big situation, he also sees you. He sees you. He cares about you. He loves you. Yeah, 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 I know, I know he loves the person next to me. Yeah, he loves you. He knows your brokenness. He knows your story. And if you let him, he wants to heal your wounds. Maybe we're a lot like the Israelites and judges who assume that the answer to our problems can really be found in the things that we can buy or in the systems we create to control our environment, in our own intellect or our own abilities or even doing the right religious things. Maybe we think that. Maybe our problem is that we haven't truly faced honestly our own poverty of spirit. Many of us, not all in this room, but many of us have the means to have most of the things that we need most of the time. And most of us probably don't even think about it, that I'm not worried about having a meal to eat to offer my family tomorrow. We just don't even think about so many of these things. We're used to having more than enough in our culture. But in reality, in reality, I and you, we have insufficient funds. Insufficient funds to make myself feel comfortable in my own skin. We have insufficient funds to create a life that is lasting and whole and not just a facade. We have insufficient funds to change the things in us that really matter. 
And, and this text invites us, like Hannah, to cry out to a God who hears us and answers us. I want to take uh, a moment, give us a moment, I'm going to take it too, uh, to be still before the Lord and to do two things. One, to silently confess the crutches that we've been leaning on instead of trusting him. And two, to in this just minute of silence, to cry out to the Lord for help. Maybe our lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. I won't think that you're drunk. Let's take a moment. Lord, in this room, there are a spectrum of, of problems, of issues that we have. There are sleep-deprived parents who don't, um, who don't even remember what it feels like to be normal. Uh, there are students who are um, starting new schools and new grades and figuring out who they are in the midst of a world that's trying to tell them who they should be. There's people who are wondering where they're going to live, how they're going to provide, how much longer they can, they can stumble along. And I thank you, Lord, that all of these issues and all of the more that are unspoken are just as important to you. Lord, forgive us for the ways we've been trying to solve our problems without you. And show us by the power of your spirit what it means to trust you. Not only for forgiveness, for abundant life, a thriving life, a true life. Bless you, Lord.